Father, thank you for your presence in our lives, that you are our hiding place. And now, Lord, as we enter into the scriptures, I pray, may our hearts be open to the searching, the convicting, the comfort, the guidance, the assurance for this full spectrum of encounter with you, Lord. May we not shun, may we not run. Bless us now and lead us, I pray. Set a watch before my lips and a guard before the door of my mouth, and I pray for a holy boldness. Bless us now as we make the journey. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning I've entitled my message, Faith Without Cloud or Pillar. And I am quite confident that it is probably the most significant of the series, Confidence in Crisis, that I'll bring to your attention. So it's my hope and prayer that you'll come to this message with a humble heart, a readiness to learn, and a willingness to make the journey with Christ. If you have your Bibles this morning, open them to the book of Genesis. It's an interesting prophecy that God makes, Genesis 15, to Abraham. He's told him, that in Abraham's family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. But three chapters later, there's an encounter with God that reveals some dark times in the lineage of Abraham's family. Genesis chapter 15. God said to Abraham, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. I want to talk with you for a moment about the symbolism, the typology of the Exodus and our experience as we anticipate the final Exodus. When we think about Jacob and his children making a journey into the land of Egypt, we realized they were treated with favor. They were shepherds, so the Egyptians really didn't want anything to do with them, but they were given a very, very favorable piece of land, Goshen. And in that land, they prospered, considering that Abraham and Sarah were barren. At least Sarah was for 25 years. Then Isaac and Rebekah, barren. And eventually, in an odd sort of way, perhaps with a bit of divine comedy. Eventually, there's a child that comes through the lineage of Abraham for which there are many children, and thus we have Jacob. He wrestles with God beside the river Jabbok, and after this, he is no longer Jacob, he's Israel. It's on his journey home. It's an important thing for you to notice because if there's a metaphor that'll come out of this message, it's the fact that Christ is leading us if we will be led. And it's in the journey that there's transformation. On that journey back to, to the land of promise, Jacob has a transformational encounter and he is no longer the deceiver, the supplanter, the one who adds to, the one who looks out for the outcome. He's now dependent on the God who called him back 
into the crisis of meeting his brother of going home. When we think about this explosion of population that comes during these period of years in Egypt, we realize that God fulfilled the promise in an abundant way and that a way it appears that he held back with Abraham and Sarah, held back with Rebecca and Isaac. It appears that God's abundant blessing is upon the children of Jacob while they're in the land of Egypt. So abundant is it that eventually the point comes where the Pharaoh says, we've got a problem on our hands. These people are multiplying way too fast. I want to talk with you a minute about what that journey into bondage might look like in a modern day. The experience in Egypt did not turn into an immediate sojourn of slavery. It started out in a cooperative, you could say symbiotic or mutually beneficial relationship between the Israelites and the Egyptians. But eventually it turned into something that was oppressive, something that was afflictual. When I think about the experience of the American church, the Protestant church, not just the American Protestant church, but the Protestant church in general, but I'm going to focus my sentiments especially around the experience of Protestantism in America, it appears that we have found ourselves descending into a journey of bondage. It's a bondage of desire, but in the mix of that desire, there is also a certain type of affliction. Especially, I think about the fact of how many smaller churches in America are closing every week. Well, you say that's all part of a demographic shift. To some degree, it is. But it's more than that. It is a surrendering of our unique identity, distinctly constructed by the Word of God. And what's happening is, is that there is a new bondage of desire, and on the backside, there's affliction. Our churches, I'm going to speak Seventh-day Adventist for a moment, our churches and our schools in many places are struggling to exist, let alone to succeed. And our young people, as it were, are being thrown into the Nile, never to be brought back to us. The gods of this age are destroying heart, mind, and soul for God. And the affliction comes on the backside. I want you to think about this kind of bondage. I want you to think about it in the terms of addiction. How many different experiences or substances are the Western Christian world struggling to be free from? There used to be a day when there was much less to tempt and it was much more difficult to get at. I think today about the bondage of substance. It can be illegal drugs. It can be prescription drugs. It can be alcohol. It's all around us. When I think about the dynamics of our free love from the 60s onward, the immorality of relationships, the addictive dynamics of pornography, and the outcome on the backside, the affliction is husbands who can't love their wives and husbands that are absent in homes. I think about the elements of money, gambling. I think about the dynamics of materialism. Oh yes, we've got more than anybody else and it's destroying us behind the scenes. We were born almost as it were to shop. And how many hours do we spend in front of these devices, whether they're in our pockets or mounted on our walls? 
We're living vicariously through the experience of other people. We make our way to the same arenas. We stand and shout and yell in ecstasy over some of the same songs. It appears that we have a new bondage, a bondage of desire that has now addicted us to those desires and the ability to get free or the desire to even recognize there might be an addiction is gone. When I think about Israel's experience at the moment in which there was to be some kind of intervention, Pharaoh says, we're going to do a little population control here. And all the baby boys are going to be thrown in the Nile River. It just so happens that there are two women, Shipra and Pua, there in Exodus chapter 1. And they determine in their own hearts that no matter what is said on the throne, what's going to happen on the birthing stool is going to be different. And when one of those little baby boys slips into their hands and the cord is cut and they swat it on the back and they swab it off and prepare it to be laid in the mother's arms, they determine they'll have nothing to do with the deliverance of these Hebrew baby boys into the hands of the God of Egypt, the Nile River. Where are the Shipras and the Puas today? Where are the godly women who recognize that the heart and soul of the Christian experience, not only of their own family and their own children, but the churches therein, is being ravaged by the interest of the people on the inside as they make their way to the places, sometimes on the outside, sometimes not. Writing in Patriarchs and Prophets, the author says, it was when the Israelites were in a condition of outward ease and security that they were led into sin. They failed to keep God ever before them. They neglected prayer and cherished a spirit of self-confidence. Ease and self-indulgence left the citadel of the soul unguarded and debasing thoughts found entrance. It was the traitors within the walls that overthrew the strongholds of principle and betrayed Israel into the power of Satan. It is thus that Satan will seek to compass the ruin of the soul. In the precincts of our mind, we can hear the echoes of Jesus speaking of false prophets, many that would come in his name. And this, for instance, they're not echoing false future prophecy, but they're failing to properly edify, instruct, exhort, and console the people of God. There are people inside Christianity today that have led us into the arms of the world. There are people inside Adventism today that have led us into the arms of the world, and a new love has developed, and it's a new form of bondage, and the affliction on the backside is the destruction of Holy Communion holy fellowship, and a desire to worship a holy God. It was by associating with idolaters, she goes on to say, and joining in their festivities that the Hebrews were led to transgress God's law and bring his judgments upon the nation. So now it is by leading the followers of Christ to associate with the ungodly and unite in their amusements that Satan is the most successful in alluring them into sin. And then quoting 2 Corinthians 6, 17, New Testament teaching straight from the heart of God through the pen of Paul, come out from among them and be ye separate, says the Lord, and touch not 
the unclean thing. God requires of his people now as great a distinction from the world in customs, habits, and principles as he required of ancient Israel. And if they faithfully follow the teachings of his word, this distinction will exist. It cannot be otherwise. I want you to think about this. In the Greco-Roman world, if you were going to watch the same entertainment, you had to be in the theater. If you're going to watch the same sporting event, you had to be in the Colosseums. Today, we don't need to go to those places. All we have to do is dial it up in the right URL on our phone, our iPad, our computer, our smart TV. But is there a diminished dynamic of influence upon us because we're not sitting shoulder to shoulder with someone who doesn't profess Christ? Or is the effect just the same? Are the heart's desires drawn out in worship to something that will destroy the love of the holy, the good, the true, God himself? Christ is calling us to a distinction in the privacy of our own home, in the privacy especially of our own mind. He's calling us to boundaries that protect a relationship. He's calling us out of the bondage of desire and back into the freedom of the soul that will allow us to be a fear to evil. They allow us to have the power of the Spirit in our own lives, breaking the bondage of sin, setting us free from a new kind of slavery. Oh, yes. We've not felt the destruction of the age upon those who resist its influence yet. We've not seen the switch from desire to destruction. That's yet in the future. But if one thing is clear, that from the age of economic enlightenment, In the 1950s and the 60s onwards, from the age of the electronic revolution with the television and all the various silver screens that have come afterwards, there has been a not-so-subtle attempt to draw God's people into association with the heathen and create a desire in the heart and a bondage of the mind that makes us every bit as much stuck in Egypt and citizens of this earth as were those of the Israelites. The warnings given to the Hebrews against assimilating with the heathen were not more direct or explicit than those forbidding Christians to conform to the spirit and the customs of the ungodly. She goes on to say, Christ speaks to us, love not the world, neither the things of the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, 1 John 2, 15. And then James 4, 4, the friendship of the world is enmity with God, and whoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And then she gives this very practical advice. I hope for every parent, I hope for every pastor, I hope for every teacher, I hope for every pathfinder leader and adventurer director, I hope for every Sabbath school teacher, I hope this is emblazoned in the mind of every young, middle-aged, and old person. The followers of Christ are to separate themselves from sinners, choosing their society only when there is opportunity to do them good. Yes, indeed, there's a new affliction on the church of God. Its influence is marginalized. Its effect is diminished. Its power to protect itself appears to be greatly, greatly evaporating. We, should, we cannot be too decided in shunning the company of those who exert an influence to draw us away from God. While we pray, lead us not into temptation... We are to shun temptation as far as possible. 
Yes, at the beginning of this message, it's important for you to understand there's a new bondage on the face of the earth. It may not be addiction for you yet, but eventually that's what it turns into. And we worship our own desires as opposed to being liberated from those desires by God's chosen instrument, Jesus Christ. The second component of this faith without cloud or pillar, this journey, is that moving from where you're at to where you should go requires a decision. It requires an intervention. For many, the rationalizing will be such that there's no need to move from where I'm at. And you can find myriad number of preachers or teachers, theologians and commentators who can tell you that where you're at is just fine. And those pangs of conscience and those pangs of conviction, set those aside, experience God's grace in a new way. There is a liberating power to God's grace. There is a freedom in God's grace. It is the breaking of the bonds of desire. It is a, it is a severing of the ties with the things of this world, but it starts with a decision. It starts with an intervention. For some, this message might be the intervention. There was a message brought to Moses. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus chapter 3. You remember he thought the deliverance would come through his training, through his favoritism with the nation, but he found himself instead in exile. But in that exile, God came again after 40 years of retooling, a deeper connection with him, less of a dependence on his own military might and stratagem. And we find God encountering Moses in Exodus chapter 3. There's a burning bush. There's sandals off of his feet. There's a mystery. And then there's a conversation. Verse 10. Therefore, come now, and I will send you to Pharaoh, so that you may bring my people, the sons of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? And he said, Certainly I will be with you, and this shall be a sign to you, that it's I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. Then Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel and I will say to them the God of your fathers has sent me now then they may say to me what is his name what shall I say to them and God said to Moses I am who I am and he said thus you shall say to the sons of Israel the I am has sent me God furthermore said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial name to all generations. Slip over to chapter 4. The conversation is ongoing, but eventually Moses says, I don't want to be a part of it. Verse 10, Then Moses said to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, neither recently nor in time past, nor since you've spoken to your servant, for I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said to him, who made man's mouth? Or who made him mute or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now then go, I, even I, will be with your mouth and teach you what to say. But he said, please, Lord, send the message by whomever you will. And verse 14 is an interesting Revelation of a real encounter between God and his chosen instrument. Then the anger of the Lord burned against Moses, and he said, Is there not your brother Aaron the Levite? I know that he speaks fluently 
And behold, he's coming out to meet you. And he will be glad in his heart. Why do I spend the moments on this part of the message, the birth pangs of deliverance? Because most of us have gotten very comfortable where we're at. Most of us don't want to move. We may have affliction all around us, and yet somehow our minds have dealt with the dissonance and turned it into a regular relationship, and somehow we, we think we're better off with what we know than the discomfort of change. Worse than that, there are things that we love that we don't want to call problematic. We don't want to identify as addiction. We don't want to identify as competitor for love for God. We certainly don't want to call idol. Moses had gotten quite comfortable in the quiet shepherding life of Midian. Moses was in a place where he himself did not want to move. His youthful ambition had faded away to the questioning of middle age. And he wasn't ready to go back and embrace the challenges which he better understood now. And of course, he better understood himself. Nothing's different when it comes to his arrival with the Israelites. He shows up to declare that God is here to answer their prayers. And everything is fine and good until the first encounter with Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh says, you folks have a problem. You're enjoying too much free time. From now on, you'll make those bricks without straw. Everything that Moses was afraid of starts to become true. He becomes odious in the nostrils of his own people. And in chapter 5, verse 20, he turns to God and he says, Why did you send me? When they left Pharaoh's presence, chapter 5 of Exodus, verse 20, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for him. And they said, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you've made us odious in the Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants. Go over to chapter 6, verse 30. Then Moses said before the Lord, Behold, I'm unskilled in speech. How will Pharaoh listen to me? The doubt about whether or not he'd be received by his own countrymen when he was rebuffed in the moment of deliverance four decades before. The frustration that his own people have with him as they think he's brought these trouble upon him. There are birth pangs to deliverance. Moses is afraid Pharaoh won't listen. Moses is afraid his own people won't listen. And if you're a pastor listening to me today, you have the same fears. You're afraid that as God deepens conviction in your heart and you're the instrument, you're the catalyst, you're the call for something to change, you're afraid that God's people won't follow God's servant on a journey out of bondage to the promised land. This is the challenge for every administrator who becomes more comfortable politicking the way to community than actually pastorally leading to community. There's trauma in the camp of Israel as deliverance is the birth pangs of deliverance are upon the nation. And there will be trauma in your household when you say, we've been watching too much of this. You've had too much screen time with that. The habits and the entertainment you've chosen, some of the sporting events, etc., the music you're listening to, God's been speaking to me as the dad or the mom of this house, and it's time for some things to change. And if you think there won't be birth pangs associated with deliverance, you need to think again. 
God is in this moment globally attempting to awaken his people, showing that there is anguish and affliction coming on the backside of desire, that the party can't go on forever, and that there is a day of judgment on the horizon. And he would love to put us safe inside the shelter of his sanctifying and sanctuary grace. But if we think that we can hold on to that while he's holding on to us, if we think he does not desire embrace as he attempts to embrace us, we're living under a colossal spiritual misunderstanding. No, it's not up to you to affect the change, but it might be up to you to announce and lead into the change. And you'll be doubting like Moses did. Who's going to listen to me? And I'm going to create a problem. And the truth of the matter is, when there's darkness and destruction and devastation and bondage in the house, but it's become appreciated, even loved. Vice is a monster of such frightful mien. To be hated needs but be seen, yet stared too often in the face we first endure, then pity, then embrace. Yes, breaking the embrace will not be easy. And yet God will go before us, and he will fight the battles for us. And he will give us the words we need, the restraint we need, the patience and the wisdom we need, the resolve we need. But there are birth pangs to deliverance. If anybody thinks there aren't, they're not reading the word and they haven't stood much on the side of right. The third part of this experience of faith without cloud and pillar is God's building of our faith. When you look at the experience of Moses and the people of God, There's an encounter, probably by a river palace in which water turns to blood. There's an encounter where serpents, which were formerly dead sticks and rods, are locked in conflict. And the serpent of God from the rod of Moses destroys the serpents of Egypt and its magicians. And then there's one more dynamic of miraculous manifestation in which the people of Israel are given an up-close and personal look at the destruction that's coming. The god of frogs in the land of Egypt becomes the plague of frogs all across the land, even in Goshen. This first of the terrible plagues, third in line of the miracles of deliverance, perhaps you could say second in some ways. Yes, the serpents, then the water to blood, now the frogs. Even in Goshen, these amphibians are jumping all around and getting into everything. And finally, God draws a line. And every plague forward from that time on is only outside of Goshen. Insects, sickness on cattle, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and eventually a Passover. In the midst of that moment, God's people gather. They're in such a hurry that they take their dough without putting the leaven in it. They assemble together to follow Moses, who's led by God, all of them by the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And they start on a journey, a journey to worship, a journey of liberty. They don't leave poor, though. They've been told, ask for the wealth of Egypt, and it's freely given to them. Finally, we come to the testing of their faith. Turn, if you would, to Exodus chapter 14. They've made their way out of Egypt. 
And it appears to those that are doing reconnaissance for Pharaoh that they don't know where they're going and they're in trouble. Exodus chapter 14. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, tell the sons of Israel to turn back and camp before Piharoth between Migdal and the sea. For Pharaoh will say to the sons of Israel, of the sons of Israel, they're wandering aimlessly in the land. The wilderness has shut them in. When they finally are over the stupor of the grief of so many corpses in Egypt, firstborn in every household where the blood was not applied, which means everybody that was still there, when they finally shake off the stunned grief that the prize of their parental journey, their firstborn, are gone, the rage the resentment, the resistance to the, the Spirit of God re-enters the heart of Pharaoh, and he says, we've made a terrible mistake. It's time for us to strike back. And so with 600 of his best chariots and so many others, he starts marching after Israel, and wouldn't you know it, he catches them at exactly the right spot. There with the mountain range on the left and the northern end of the Red Sea on the right, Israel comes down into a segment of of Egyptian real estate where there is no retreat. God's people have been following the cloud that's going before them. It is not perhaps the path that they would have marked out. If they could have gone from Egypt to Canaan without a transformative journey where the appetites that they had acquired in Egypt were purged and left behind, they all would have said hurrah. But the journey is transformative. And this God who had built their faith is now going to test their faith. God has brought to its knees the most powerful nation on the face of the planet some 3,500 years ago. God has shaken the confidence of the Egyptians to where some have actually gone out with the Israelites. The land is ravaged agriculturally, its economy, its spirituality. It's all left in doubt. There is really nothing in Egypt that's left. But there is one thing the Israelites were to take out of the experience in Egypt, especially the last several weeks, and that is that their God can intervene and deliver, and they can have confidence in His ability to take them from the beginning to the end. But that confidence is going to be tested. They're going to come to a place where the Egyptian army is behind, and the Red Sea is before, and there's nowhere else to go. Why is it important that this test of faith is experienced. God's not desiring to reveal the absence of their confidence. He's looking to increase it. But for all of us, we should understand not only is there a journey into bondage if we're not paying attention, not only is that journey mainly a bondage of desire and affliction on the backside, Not only is it difficult to make a decision that we need to move the birth pangs of deliverance upon us, and not only does God take us on a journey of liberating faith-building experiences, but God brings us eventually to moments where He says, will you trust me? That's where Israel is on the edge of the Red Sea. They've watched God shake a nation that no one ever imagined could be brought to ruin in such a fashion. And here that nation is ready to destroy and recapture. And this encounter there at the Red Sea is one worthy of our reflection. Verse 11, Exodus 14. 
Then they said to Moses, Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out into Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Certainly we have evidence here that for many the faith-building dynamic was on the waning side and the fear dynamic was on the ascendancy. I want you to know that Moses' response is important for many even though all don't benefit by it. Verse 13, Moses said to the people, don't fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you this day. For the Egyptians whom you've seen today, you will never see them again forever. I want to talk to you for a moment about spiritual mirroring, relational emotional mirroring. The spirit you bring into your home, the way you deal with a crisis, is likely to be mirrored in the lives of the people around you. You bring fear and foreboding to your lips, you'll create fear and foreboding in the hearts of the people that are seeking to find confidence and know which way to go. God is calling every leader listening to me here to make an advanced journey with Jesus as Moses did so that in moments of crisis, when the heart quails, when there's natural fear and foreboding, someone can say, don't be afraid. The same God who brought us this far is going to take us the rest of the way. But then there's this very interesting experience between Moses and God. Verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. Now something that I think is very important for us to all recognize is that the the enemy was as visible as was the presence of God. The cloud that had been above them was actually before them. And whatever need of shade they had, God provided it for them. But the cloud was not behind them. The scripture makes it very clear that the cloud that was before their face, verse 19, look at it. The angel of God who had been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. There's an emphasis on the word before here. I want you to know that God will allow Satan to manifest his menacing presence to strike fear into our hearts. He will look more visibly present than sometimes the presence of God. But I don't want you to forget there was a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. It was before them. In the book Patriarchs and Prophets, the author actually states that they went from believing it was God leading them to it being a harbinger or an omen of disaster. Can you imagine? There are going to be moments when you doubt what God has been doing up to the present. There are going to be moments when you wonder if you really got it right, which means letting God be God is exceptionally paramount in importance. Yes, indeed, there are going to be times when you say to yourself, has this really been what I thought it was? Because the enemy will be visible. And then you're going to doubt some element of the assurance of God because it probably won't be quite as visible. Why are you calling out to me? I find this a very interesting expression from God to Moses. We don't have the full scope of the dialogue. We don't know what prayers were uttered. But we do know this. 
He didn't bring them that far to leave them. And we do know this. There were only two directions they could go. Mountain on the right, water on the left and before them, and the Egyptian army behind. You might say there was actually nowhere for them to go except where the cloud had postured they were headed. And the appraisal of the situation from God to Moses is go forward. There are a lot of people listening to me today that aren't going anywhere. I didn't say it in the first segment of this message, but if your children were born in Egypt, that is in Goshen in Egypt, if your children were raised in an Adventist home, you've got a double challenge on your plate as a parent, as a grandparent, as a teacher, because your children grew up, what they grew up with was all they ever knew. Winston Churchill once said, if you want to understand a man, look at the world when he was 20. You may say to yourself, yes, my children have been born in Goshen, in Egypt. Friends, don't think to yourself that Egypt isn't trying to invade the experience of your children, of your family. The truth of the matter is, there are people listening to me who have decided that the conveniences of life in Goshen, even as Egypt encroaches on the purity and the innocence of their family, the Goshen isn't such a bad place to be. I'm here to tell you today that if you go through this experience with COVID-19 and nothing changes, if you go through this global pandemic with the restriction of liberties and a knowledge, it has the overtones, it has the echoes of, of plague similar to those we've just read about. If you go through this whole experience and there are no prayers like the prayer of David, search me and know me and see if there be any wicked way in me. If you go through this whole moment and a, a spiritual sense of confidence without any sense of reflection and potential movement, then you're in a very dangerous position. This is a divine wake-up call. These are birth pangs of deliverance. These are God's attention-getting moments. They are the echoes and the evidence of God's prophetic ability, rapid movements associated with final movements. Who would have thought that from February to March, the world could be such a different place? Yes, there's people listening to me for whom I fear this moment, these weeks, these months of shelter in place, these economic hardships, these medical traumas, it'll come and go, and because it doesn't directly touch them, nothing will change. God calls us out of our, well, let me make another observation. For those that are older than me, and by the way, I was not born in Goshen. I was actually born in Egypt. And I spoke about this a few sermons ago. I was actually born in the dysfunction of Egypt. Fortunately, I was brought into the family of faith and I discovered the beauty of holiness. If you were born in Goshen, you have a peculiar challenge on your hand because you don't want anybody upsetting the comfort, the joy, the indulgences that you've come to know. But in this church, especially if you're a generation older than me, I hear my teachers, 
I hear the old preachers, those that are a generation older than me, talking about Pharisaism, all the rules. The truth of the matter is, we've gone from Pharisaism to laissez-faireism, which we just live and let live, and whatever happens, happens. We've gone from a period in time in, in the experience of God's church where there used to be structure, and yes, the structure was at time abused and wrongly pro- prioritized. The values were held up above the people. But we've now gone to a place where values are relics of a spirituality of times gone by that ought to be jettisoned. And so what does the road to deliverance look like? Go forward, God said. The cloud have been before their face. It's time to move. We don't currently have a cloud and a pillar, do we? We don't see the visible manifestation of God showing us which path to take. You say to yourself, you're at a tremendous disadvantage. Or are you? I need you to know that 3,500 years ago during the days of the Exodus, none of them had the privilege of holding one of these. 66 books written over a period of 1,500 years. They didn't have the opportunity to enter into a dialogue with the living God through a written word. They had oral tradition. They had the stories. They had memorization. They had many things. But they were at a great disadvantage and that the holy words of God were not written down. Friends, if you could look to the sky and get an omen or a sign, that would be good. But if you could talk to a living God and you could hear His voice, that would be even better. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open up to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 17. All of us are on a journey. That favorite psalm of the Old Testament, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The next verses say, He leadeth me. We sing about it, we're going to sing about it. Luke chapter 17, Jesus has us on a journey. Hanging in the walls of the general conference is the, the picture, the painting of the Jesus of the narrow way. This journey is our journey. There's a call to transformation in the making of the journey. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus had an encounter. It says in verse 11, while he was on his way to Jerusalem, he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. He entered a village and 10 leprous men stood at the distance to meet him. And raising their voices, they said, Jesus, master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priest. And as they were going, I want to emphasize this, as they were going, the scripture said they were cleansed. This journey of following Christ is a transformative one. It's a confidence building one. And occasionally it's a confidence testing one. In 1 John 1, 7, it says, if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. John chapter 9, the blind man was sent to the pool of scent of Siloam to wash. How much is lost when we fail to make the journey? Walking in the light is how God cleanses us. When we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleansing us. But how many have rejected the journey? I'm here to say today, there are many denominational affiliations 
that have not rejected their denominational affiliation, but they have still rejected Christ. Christianity has been kicked to the curb while Adventism or whatever ism you want to put on it is left behind. It's an ethnic identity. It's a group of people with uh, their own sense of culture and their own habits. But what's been left behind is so many of those who have refused to let Jesus be the shepherd leading them onward. Deuteronomy chapter 30, this is what Moses wrote. The commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious. It's not far off. It's not in heaven that you should say who will send to heaven for us to bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that we should say who will go over the sea and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. Michael Card, the contemporary songwriter, put it this way. No, it's not up in heaven where your thoughts could not reach nor beyond the ocean on some distant beach. No, the word is so near in the innermost part. It's alive on your lips. It abides in your heart. Friends, for centuries, for millennia, people waited for the presence of Christ. Do we really think in all of those years that preceded the incarnation, the birth of Jesus, That God's spirit was not near to those he he would come and visibly manifest himself to? Do we really think that Moses' promise about the word being near is for some far off time in the past or in the future? Or is there this promise of a living God who will, who will, will hear a voice behind us saying, this is the way, walk in it. How are we going to come to that moment when in the judgment Jesus has to say, as it says in Matthew chapter 7, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. They had just stood before Jesus and said, we prophesied, we taught, we worked miracles. And Jesus said, you're going to have to leave. We don't belong to each other. We don't even know each other. How does this happen? It happens when God's people reject God's call to move where God is going. And when God's people refuse to go where God is going, they are left behind in a bondage which they may actually desire. And then in the last moments, there is the devil's dastardly desire to destroy. And he comes with the armies of this earth, be they Egyptian or whatever they might be. And once he's infected us, and once he's choked the life of God out of us, He only has one thing that he desires to do, and that is to extinguish us from his presence. We're not there yet, friends. That's what's coming. That's why we're going to see seven plagues again. That's why we're going to see the battle of Armageddon when the devil thinks in the final bold stroke he's going to take all the advantages of the visible enemy and destroy those who still have confidence in an invisible God, but they're keeping his word, and Jesus will come riding on the white horse, and he will deliver us and destroy the evil, and we'll go on rejoicing, saying, lo, this is our God. We've waited for him. We've journeyed with him through life. I want to make perhaps the most important call I've ever made about moving in the last moments of this message. When they left Egypt, they went as a group. When we make our seven-day journey through the cloudless universe, we're going to go as a group. How is it that we should think that the God who manifests himself in cloud and pillar 
The God who wants to bring his word very near to us. The God who's going to lead us on a seven-day journey from this worldly Egypt to our heavenly Canaan land. How is it that we should think in the most troublous, perilous spiritual moments of earth's history that we're not going as a group now? There are things you're going to learn about God that you're only going to learn with the group. There are things you're going to learn about yourself that you're only going to learn with the group. And for all those who are isolated and think somehow God's going to take you on your own individual journey from spiritual Egypt to the real promised land, you're making a grave mistake. God is calling us together. When Paul would write in Hebrews 10.25, and yes, I believe he wrote the book, don't forsake the assembling together or some are in the manner of doing, but all the more so as you see the day approaching. If ever there was a call to togetherness, it's now. This is why Christ's prayer in John 17 matters so much. This is why in those thousands of references in the spirit of prophecy, it would be a prayer for pressing together and for unity and a reference to the prayer of Christ. There are things we're going to learn about God and each other that we're only going to learn in the group, and there's a love for each other that's going to grow, that's going to make us different, that's going to protect and preserve and cleanse and bond and unify If our churches are going to make this journey, they're going to gather. They're going to pray. They're going to bond. They're going to work. Because we're not just to get out of Goshen. We're to go to the promised land. And on the way, we're to invite as many people as want to go to go with us. There's only one direction for God's church to go. There's only one direction for our schools to go. There's only one direction for our homes to go, and that is to go forward. The enemy is trying to encroach upon us. He is trying to win us through desire before he seeks to destroy us with the power of his destructive artifices. Indeed, friends, if you want to have faith without cloud or pillar, the familiarity of the assuring words of Christ will have to be residing in the precincts of your mind. They'll have to be sung in the congregation of your home and in the communion of your church. The things that will drive back fear and create confidence will have to be, well, they will have to be modeled by your leaders and preached from your preachers. They're going to have to be taught by your dads and nurtured by your moms. All of these things that would allow us to have all the confidence we need as Satan seeks to rally the greatest display of intimidation we've ever seen. Therefore, us, the word is near. The cloud was there. The pillar was there. They thought for a moment, though, lest you think that physical manifestation is what we really need. They thought for a moment it was all a divine hoax. But when that east wind started blowing and Moses started walking to the water, they went in the moonlit night, the dark of midnight, they crossed, the Bible makes it very clear, in repetitive ways, a wall on the left, a wall on the right, and dry ground under their feet. That deliverance is for you and it is for me. But if we don't make the journey, if we decide we don't want to move, if we can't endure the the difficulty of those birth pangs of deliverance, if we say, leave us alone, if we're not willing to acknowledge that we need to get out, if we're not willing to make the transformative journey, then we should find ourselves someday shaken into the arms of Lucifer, 
abandoning our love for Jesus. For the bonds of affection to this earth are too strong. And we're left in the embrace of the one who wants to destroy. So, what is the appeal? Friends, the appeal is to let the Spirit speak. The appeal is to be still and know that He is God. The appeal is to let the conviction deepen in prayer. The appeal is let the peace of God reign supreme in your heart as you start to move. The appeal is to rehearse the promises. The appeal is to move in communion and community. The appeal is a call to prayer. The appeal is to recognize that in the heart of all of us, there's something that's gotten pretty comfortable with Egypt. The appeal is to go forward. The appeal is for the Spirit of God to rejuvenate His church, rejuvenate our lives, rejuvenate our homes, rejuvenate our relationships. The appeal is to let Jesus lead us on across that spiritual Jordan. The next generation had their own Red Sea moment. The next generation had to take a journey of faith, every generation, and especially this one, for Jesus will come soon. Indeed, friends, the appeal is, is to let God lead. Can he have the desires of your heart? Can he talk to you about what's wrong? Can he speak to you of the competitors? Let him. Let him lead you to true freedom. Let him lead you to true function. Let him lead you to true fruitfulness. Let him lead you all the way from here to heaven. We're going to go most of the way without a cloud or without a pillar. We know Isaiah speaks of this, and we know that God will manifest himself as he needs to manifest himself in these end times to buoy up our faith, to remind us he's near. But there's no cloud or pillar right now. But there is a call. It's a call to a surrendered heart, a new communion, and a journey forward. Not just for our sake and our children's sake, but for all those that are citizens of Egypt trapped in the dysfunction and the despair of sin. God is calling this church back to might and power, not through our own stratagem, our own genius, our own money, but through the Spirit of the Lord. The question is, will we go? I invite you. Let's make this journey. Let's go with Jesus. Let's let him lead us all the way. May God bless us as we come what appears to be at least the lessening of fear, the lessening of restrictions. Maybe we can start to see the light at the end of the tunnel of COVID-19, but may the light of Jesus continue leading us to higher ground. God be with you, be in his word, and remember the word is so near, especially if we desire to hear. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.